Triple Content Creations presents Disability After Dark, the premier podcast shining light on sex and disability with your host, Andrew Gerza. Disability After Dark with Andrew Gerza. Shining a bright light on sex and disability. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming to another episode of Disability After Dark. I'm really excited you're here, and I'm really happy you want to have conversations around sex and disability. So let's get to it, and let's get to the show. As always, I want to thank you for coming back, and I want to let you know that this episode was, again, a culmination of you wonderful listeners following me on Twitter and giving me ideas about what the next episode should be about, because I always do polls to find out what kind of stuff you want to talk about. And today, what we're going to talk about is working in the industry as a disability awareness consultant and cripple content creator, and doing the work that I do, working, telling my story as a queer cripple, doing lectures, doing this podcast, and doing the work that I do, and kind of, kind of, kind of unveiling what it is to work in this industry and to create a name for myself in this industry as a disability awareness consultant. So it's not going to be the sexiest topic, but I think it's an important one to talk about how to bring the topic of sex and disability, which is so personal and so taboo, how do you bring that into the public sphere and make it something palatable for an audience? And that's what I want to share with you and talk about today. People ask me all the time in interviews when they interview me for, you know, magazines or articles or even podcasts, they ask me, Andrew, how did you get started in this industry? Where did where did your desire to do this come from? And I think I mentioned it way back last year on the first episode, kind of how, but I'm going to reiterate why I started doing what I do. Um, It really, this whole thing, my whole kind of business model was born out of, oddly enough, a bout of depression. I was really depressed about five, I want to say five and a half years ago, almost six years ago now, when I moved from my university town to... Um, to where I was living at the time. I moved kind of closer to my family. And I was sitting at home one day, and I was horny, and I was a little bit depressed. And I was on the internet looking for for porn or something to do. Porn, possibly work, possibly myself. I was looking for a version of myself out there in the world, and I wasn't finding anything. So I just I was emailing companies in Toronto, magazines, saying, do you have queer magazines? saying, do you have disability representation in your magazine? And many of them said no. And I said, great, well, I'm right here. Let's like, let's talk about this. Let's do this. Um, I'd love to be featured. And it was really me kind of just cold calling these magazines and saying, I want to be a part of your narrative. Let me bring disability to you um, for your magazine or for your, your, your readership. And 
I had no experience in doing this. I just wanted to put myself out there. I was really, really green. I was really, really new to all of it. And I had no idea how to make this palatable. And I just said, I want to do this. Can we try something? And so many places said, well, you know, we're not really looking for that. We're not really sure how to market that. But a few of them in Toronto said, look, we'll feature you. One of them, one of them, which was called the fab magazine in toronto which is now defunct but it they they jumped on it and said we'd love to have you as a cover boy would you come and be our cover person and i was like okay sure so within about two hours of me sending them an email they had a photographer at my house and i had never been i had never had professional photos like that taken before where they wanted me to like take off my shirt and and do a photo now i'm more of a pro. I'm so nervous and weird when I do that. There will be an episode about me in front of the camera shortly enough, I'm sure. But at the time, I was really green to it. Um, and I remember thinking, like, oh, I get to be in front of the... Like, I was excited but also terrified by this prospect of being in front of the camera. And I was excited because people would get to see me. And I was also terrified because people would get to see me. And I wasn't sure how to do any of that. But that little cover came out about a, two or three weeks later. The cover came out. I think it might have been sooner than that. It might have been, it might have been like a week later. The cover came out and people started seeing it and they put it on their front cover and there I was. And it was like this big deal to see myself doing it. And it wasn't so much that I was seeing myself. Yes, I was enjoying the fame whoreness of all of that. But it was more like, this is me seeing a represent a representative version of myself and that was really important to me and so members of the community who saw it started writing in and saying how inspiring it was how great it was to see that they had a lot of they had a lot of views which when i when i look back at some of the things people said about that very first thing i did there was a lot of what i'm gonna call professional ableism that was happening they were inspired by it, but I think and I worry that it was possibly for the wrong reasons because I was disabled. And so you you read that. And at the time, at the time, I think I was just excited to be in anything. But seeing how people noted my being in something showed me that there was that we still have a lot, a lot of work to do within our communities to combat this type of ableism. Um, at the same time that that cover came out, I was pitching things to. Huffington Post and saying to them like, "Hey, I'm around. Can I pit? Can I write stuff for you?" And the amazing Noah Michelson, who is the executive editor of Queer Voices, Huffington Post, told me to pitch ideas and just start writing. And his his advice to me has always been just start writing, and something will come to you. And if you have ideas, don't really pitch them to me. Just write them down and bring them to me. And so I had so much to say on the experience of queerness and disability. And like that intersection, I had so much to say and to share about this. When he said, right, I wrote, I must have written about five or six ideas down, full articles and said, here you go. Here, here are my thoughts. What do you think? And initially when I was writing my first couple pieces for HuffPo Queer Voices, um, my writing, I think, was really trying to speak to an able-bodied audience and really trying to make disability and queerness palatable and palpable for them. I don't think palpable is the right word there, but I like how it sounds on the mic, so I'm going to say it again. Palpable. I don't think that's the right word, but it sounds good, so we'll leave it. Um, 
but it was trying to make disability and sexuality palatable for an audience, for an able-bodied audience. And some people have said of my previous writing that it's pandering to an able-bodied audience. And I would say now, honestly, a couple years in, yeah, it was. It definitely was. Because I wanted an able-bodied audience to be able to read what I was writing about and access it properly. And also, I wanted people to like what I was writing. And so I was trying to make it... I remember the first couple drafts of what I was writing. I wrote about, you know, a disastrous first date or something that went horribly. And I, I remember trying to make it like a Dear Abby column with little pithy asides. And the trouble is that the asides, sometimes in my writing, my asides, my inner voice pulls away from what I'm supposed to be doing and from what I'm supposed to write about. And so I've had editors be like, this is nice, but move away from the aside. And so the more and more I write stuff, um, when I write things around queerness and disability now, my writing, I think, has gotten a little bit rougher, has gotten a little bit more acerbic, has gotten a little bit less like, let's talk about sex and disability, haha, <laughs> and more like, oh, fuck, let's really talk about this, let's like, let's wade into this together, and let me tell you what it really feels like, and I love the fact that I've progressed that way, and I think so many of us who write around sex and disability understand how hard it is to get to find a voice to write these things down. Penning such personal narratives around sex and disability as so many of us who do this work know, isn't easy at all, and it takes so much time and energy and consideration to make sense of these experiences we've had for an audience. There's a lot more to come on this episode of Disability After Dark, but first, we're going to play some ads from our awesome sponsor and some great listeners. So we'll do that, and we'll be right back on Disability After Dark, the podcast shining light on sex and disability with your host, Andrew Gerza. Hi, this is Carrie Wade. I am a professional disabled person and a writer over at autostraddle.com. And I listen to Disability After Dark, the podcast to shine a bright light on sex and disability. And you should tune in too. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by the worker owners of Come As You Are. Come As You Are has the peculiar distinction of being the world's only worker-owned cooperative sex shop. With feminist and anti-capitalist values, Come As You Are only carries sexuality products that they truly believe in at the lowest price possible. Get free shipping at www.comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. Let's shine a bright light on sex and disability together. Connect with me on Twitter at Andrew Gerza, that's A-N-D-R-E-W-G-U-R-Z-A, and use the hashtag DisabilityAfterDark. This episode of Disability After Dark is a handmade piece of crippled content created just for you. We record, edit, and produce each piece of this show to bring disability to you in a fresh, honest, and sexy way. Help us create more episodes and support crippled content creation by heading over to our Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com slash and pledging if you can. Your monthly pledge goes towards things like audio equipment, podcast hosting subscriptions, and everything we need to bring this disability-centered program to you. By pledging your support, you're showing that disability content has value, means something, 
and deserves a place in our media landscape. Thank you for supporting this podcast. Hello, hello, and I hope you enjoyed that break and our awesome sponsor, sponsor Come As You Are, and our awesome listener ads that did bumpers for me. Thank you for those of you who listen to the show. Thank you for putting a bumper out there. If you want to create a bumper, I'd love to have you. Let me know, and I can send you the copy to create a bumper. I'd love to have that. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the show. So we were talking about how penning these narratives and putting all this stuff down on paper is really, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to put all these personal stories, so many of which happened to us, to make them kind of readable for an audience and to know that when you put them down on paper and put them in a blog, all somebody has to do is click and there's your whole experience of being sexualized and disabled for somebody to read. And so whenever I write stuff, I get extremely nervous about two things. I get nervous about, like, do I want someone understanding my identity through these words forever? These exact words could be the first time somebody's ever read about being queer and disabled and having queer disabled sex. And like, what if they read these words and it totally throws them? Or what if these words are not the right words? Or what if I didn't... What if it wasn't, you know, what if I didn't say it right? What, what, what more should I have said? So I really worry about how will these words create the queer cripple identity for somebody? And did I do it right? Did I do my job the right way? And sometimes the stuff I've written, I haven't done it the right way. And sometimes I've gone back and read stuff and been like, oh no, I have to redo that. Which is why I often take what I've written sometimes, as you've heard, via the podcast, and I read, I re, I kind of break down what I've written and say, like, okay, not sure if I agree with this now, or not sure what I feel about this, and I'm going to do that with a few articles that I've written. I'm going to go back and reread my, you know, reread some of the very first, what I might do, actually, while I'm thinking about it out loud here, I may take the very first article that I ever wrote for HuffPost and tear it to shreds with with you in an episode to talk about what I think about the experience now. Let's do that for an episode. Yes, completely. But I do, honestly, though, I do worry about what, how people are going to perceive it. I worry about how an able-bodied audience is going to perceive it. And I worry now as, I be- as I'm becoming more intersectional in the work I do, because I realize in a lot of my initial work, I was really, as I said a minute ago, I was really pandering to an able-bodied audience that wasn't intersectional in the least. And so now I really am having to change my tack the way that I write and look at how different members of different communities are going to perceive what I'm writing. And I worry about how intersectional disabled communities are going to perceive my words. I worry about doing this podcast, how intersectional communities are going to perceive what I say in this mic. So it is something that I think about a lot, and it really has transformed how I do the work I do. And I'm really proud that there are other communities that force me to be accountable in creating this narrative for, not just for myself, but for other people as well. I want to share with you now where the title Disability Awareness Consultant came from and where it, what it means for me. Actually, it's a title that I initially came up with by myself, and I was super excited to be like, look at me, 
I came up with my own moniker. Yeah. And, and when I started typing it into Google to make it my thing, I realized that other disability companies had already used that. But the difference is that they were using awareness in terms of accessibility, talking only about physical accessibility and barriers. And I was like, no, no, I want to talk about awareness from a, and accessibility from an emotional standpoint. So I immediately co-opted um, Disability Awareness Consultant and transformed it for my usage around emotional accessibility and what it means, what it feels like to be disabled versus just talking about accessibility. But I, I liked, I really liked how that sounded. I didn't want to be, people have asked me if I'm an activist and I will say to them, and I will say now that I'm a reluctant activist. The term, for some reason, the term always makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not really sure why. I haven't really like flushed out why that makes me uncomfortable, but Disability awareness consultants just sounds more, it sounds less, less like, it sounds like you could be a consult. it sounds like you could do so much more with it. When you think activist, especially around disability, you think, um, you think you're going to fight for accessibility and fight for rights and all those things. And while I'm doing a lot of that, I also want to sit with you and talk to you about stuff. And I don't want it to be this really tense standoff with an activist. I want it to be this like together moment. So disability awareness consultant sounds great. Reluctant activist sometimes is what I'll go by. Crippled content creator is my favorite one because I love alliteration. I think alliteration is really sexy to bring it back to sex. If you want to get me off, just whisper alliteration in my ear and I'm all about it. <laughs> um, but, but crippled content creator is one that I just recently started using because I create content around disability and I create content as a queer cripple and I think it's really fun to play with that and make that a professional title. Like that, that gives me like professional boners every day to be like, look what my title is. It's on a card and somebody has, to, the other day I was at a panel and they had to read out that I was a cripple content creator and I just about fell over with joy because I was like, yep. That's my professional title. That's awesome. I was so excited by it because, you know, typically when we talk about disability in professional spaces, we use professional disability terminology. And to have somebody be have to issue all of that and use language that I chose for myself is really important and really kind of powerful. And it definitely made me super excited in all the ways when that started happening. We've talked a little bit about in this episode about professional ableism, which is a term that I just kind of threw together on the fly. I'm not sure if it's a real term or not, but I like it. Professional ableism is, I guess, when you're working and somebody's being ableist to you, so, so that's what's happening. And I want to talk about how that still happens in the work that I do, even five and a half, six years in, that's still occurring. Um, the way my work is sometimes written about or edited around makes it look sometimes like I'm this innocent, queer, disabled guy just trying to have sex like everybody else. And I'm actually consistently working against that narrative now. Now I am. Five, five and a half years in, when I first started getting publicity, I kind of let them, I let a lot of editors, not all of them, some, most of them were great, but a few of them, you know, changed the wording of stuff that I put and changed things that I had said to make it more 
palatable, I think. And it really made it look like I was this, like, charity case of a cripple trying to get his rocks off when I was really trying to talk about about sex and disability in an honest way. So now, when I talk to editors and when I talk to people doing this work, I will say quite plainly to them, in fact, for a project I'm doing with a, with a magazine yesterday, prior to recording this, I said to the to the to the person doing the editing, I said, listen, when you do the editing, make sure they use the language that I've chosen, make sure I get to see it, and make sure I get to, you know, to sign off on it, because it's really important that my narrative is properly constructed for somebody to figure out what I'm talking about, the way that I want them to understand it. And so many times when disabled people write stuff, their language is changed, especially I've noticed around sexuality and disability, the language is so often so often softened, and I think you can't do that. In the work that I do, my language is very hard, very honest, very real, and very raw, and I think you can't change the language to suit somebody else because then you take away from the realness of what we're talking about, and that kind of professional ableism happens all the time. So editors... If somebody with a disability is coming to you with certain language requirements for their stuff and they have really good writing but they want to they want to use their language like either as identifiers around disability or whatever the story is, you need to let them because those narratives cannot be whitewashed or able explained away. We need to have these narratives in the work we do in the language that disabled writers and disabled content creators choose. So when I started doing talks, I love talking in front of people or in a microphone to people about my stories. And don't worry, we'll get to why I love deep-throating a mic in a second. <laughs> I loved it and still love it. I love talking to people about and giving kind of presentations about the work I do. I love sharing my stories and I love being able to, to fill a room with audience members who want to hear me talk. It's it's It feeds my fame horror kink and it feeds my professional desire for money to to continue doing what I do, which is great. Um, I love looking people in the eye and telling them real-life disabled stories. It's such a valuable and cool thing that I get to do. I love hearing the audiences both agree with, like, yes, snaps, or, like, disagree with, like, whoa, I don't know about that. Sometimes it's happened in, in lectures that I've given. Um... I love hearing them laugh at the embarrassing honesty of some of my stories. I love that. My favorite thing, though, is I love watching them sit uncomfortably as I ask them questions about sex and disability. These are hugely important moments because they highlight for me that this work is never done. When I sit in a room and I ask a room full of predominantly able-bodied people about what they think about sex and disability, the cricket sounds that I could make are deafening because it's like wow we i have so much to do i'll never be out of a job because these questions are never properly answered for people they never get real world answers and so i love that it means that i'm never out of work and because it's great it's also really annoying sometimes to be like i wish you just I, how do we not know this and how are you not how is this not something that you why are you telling me this why is this common sense thing that i understand something you don't get that can be frustrating. There are also some moments where I've sat up on stage and I've given my spiel and I've done my job and I'm talking about sex and disability and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do 
And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, do any one of these people understand what I'm telling them? Will any one of them remember me or care about what I'm telling them? More importantly, and what's something that's come to light the more and more that I do this work, (laughs) will any of the people in this room want to, after I'm done giving my spiel about how great sex, disability, and queerness is, will any of the people in this room want to fuck me? I can't count the number of times that I've given one of these talks, given one of these lectures, and I've, you know, made eyes with somebody in the audience that I thought was cute, and been like, okay, I'm done, I'm going to go now, and and hoped that they would approach me, or that I could approach them, and then I, I've ended up going back to my hotel room alone, or back home alone, knowing that they were going to go out that night, and like make out with somebody, with somebody who's totally able-bodied, and do their own thing, and not even, not even give a second thought to what I said, and that can be really frustrating, that sometimes when I'm out there doing the work, and like turning, turning my personal narrative into a professional narrative, knowing that like who who am I going to come home to and share this with? Who's going to suck my d afterwards? Who's going to give me the great sexual pleasure that I'm longing for? Who can I share sex and disability with after this talk? That's really frustrating sometimes. That really really hurts me sometimes to know that. I only get to share a sliver of the experience with people and knowing that nobody will get to touch me afterwards or I won't get to touch somebody afterwards or we won't have, you know, consensual sexual moments together afterwards. My sexuality is simply com- is commodified for an audience and that can be really hard to deal with if I'm being super honest. I also think it's extremely important to talk about kind of how, what it means for a disabled speaker when we're talking about not just sexuality and disability, but in my case, sex and disability. So many universities have asked me to come out, and then when I lay out for them the cost of being disabled and traveling and getting my care workers and getting my wheelchair there and getting all these things there, when I lay out the reality of those costs and say to them, okay, you want me, you have to cover these costs, so many of them will bulk because they don't seem to realize that yes, this is my job, but I also do it a lot of I do it a lot of freelance. So these universities need to if you're gonna hire a disabled speaker and they tell you they have access needs or disability requirements, you have to find that money in your budget. Or what a lot of universities that I work with have started doing is saying, Can we have you over Skype? And this is what I love. I love this. This is a great idea. If you, as a, as a university or a, an organization, want to have a speaker in with a disability but can't afford to fly them in, you can have them do their presentation over Skype and still pay them properly for the work and pay them their fee, obviously, but you can have them over Skype. And I just did a talk for the Breaking, the Breaking Silences Conference at Wright State University back in the middle of September. I did a talk for them via Skype. And it was great. I did it twice. I did it on a Friday afternoon, and then I did it on a Sunday afternoon for them. And it was they paid me, and it was a fantastic and great. This is such an important tool. We need to use our technologies to get disabled speakers who want to share their narrative and who we clearly need to share their narrative. We need to find accessible ways to get, to get them to do that. And Skype and technology is a really great tool 
we can use to make sure that we can pay disabled speakers and have them there virtually or otherwise. But if you can find the money to fly a speaker in, make sure when they tell you what their needs are, you listen to them. That's really important. I would really advise anybody who, any student government or any university government who wants to bring a disabled speaker in, don't be surprised by the cost of being disabled. The disabled person will tell you what their costs are, and then you, you have to either find the money or the disabled person can decline to do it because it's just sometimes it's just really hard to navigate all of that to just do it to do it to be the disabled speaker and do it is really difficult sometimes when access needs can't be met because of budgetary constraints just one final quick note about speaking gigs um standing up there and ta telling my personal stories while i have I have been able to turn it into a really like a really tight narrative. It's not easy and sometimes when I do the talk, I feel really depressed afterwards. I feel really shitty because I'm sharing this with you and no one's going to no one is going to I had to turn my personal story into something really professional and so I have to go home alone and feel weird about that. So there if you ever see me do a talk and at the end I feel I look like I have to leave and go home. It's because I don't have to sit with the reality of what I've just told you. And I think many disabled speakers have to, when we share our stories with you up there, we are reliving those narratives afterwards. And the, the emotional effects of that can be really, can be really like strong. So remember that when you're dealing with disabled speakers or anybody, anybody who's speaking, who's sharing such a personal narrative. Also, if you're an event organizer and you have multiple disabled speakers who want to speak, don't, I've had this happen to me before, well, the, well, they'll say to me like, oh, we already have a disabled speaker talking about sex. We don't know where to place you. Okay, let's not do that because every voice is important. Every voice is necessary. So if, you, if you're running a, a you, if you're running discussions on sexuality and disability and you have more than two disabled people that want to speak on that, have them both up there. Their experiences will be different and nuanced and important. Don't cut them out. I would also recommend to event organizers who want to bring disabled speakers in, really sit with a disabled person and ask them what their costs are. Ask them what their needs are. Because I've been I've been I've been pitched like, oh, we can get you we can get you a budget of a couple hundred dollars to fly you out and it's like well no I'm gonna need a lot more than that because of what my needs are make sure you talk to the disabled speaker about um, what their needs are and this happens a lot around sex positivity conferences talk to them about what their needs are first before getting them out there and last but not least the podcast that I do disability after dark I love this podcast. I love it so much. It's my baby. It's my thing. I'm really, really proud of it. I'm proud of every guest that's been on the show. I was asked the other day kind of why I do podcasting and really because it's the most accessible medium for me as a disabled queer person to share my stories. I'd need a simple mic and my voice and my computer and I can do, we've almost done 60 episodes. It's such an important medium and I love that other people have approached me and said, I want to do a podcast 
on dating and disability. I want to do a podcast on sex and disability. Can you help me? And at first, I was a little bit like, whoa, you're getting into my territory. Don't steal my stuff. But now, I am so excited that I can use what I've done to help somebody else out. Um, It's such podcasting and talking about sex is such an important thing for me um, and being able to share that with somebody without a lot of upkeep as a disabled person who needs a lot of help. Simply having a mic and a computer means that I can do this. So I would encourage anybody with a disability who wants to first come on my podcast, let's, let's be real, come on Disability After Dark and I will plug you and then I can help you build your branding into a podcast or something similar talking around sex and disability. I'd love to help somebody else out grow this. But basically, I wanted to do this episode to say that working in this industry as a disability awareness consultant and cripple content creator and the sexiest queer cripple you'll ever meet in your life is not an easy thing. It's not an easy sell to brand these personal narratives and to brand yourself this way and to make yourself the sex and disability guy. And sometimes... I was talking with Josh Galassi a few weeks ago. Sometimes you feel burnt out. And there are moments where I have felt extremely burnt out doing this work and tired of it. And I I don't necessarily always want to be the sex and disability guy. I mean, I love it. It's my bread and butter. It's my favorite thing to talk about. But it gets really tiring. And finding new ways to talk about it every week on a podcast or every other week on a podcast. P.S. I'm releasing this one. Uh, this one per week again just because I like it so much so it's not two weeks this time it's one week obviously because you're hearing it a week after the last one but doing it doing podcasts and putting this stuff out there is hard work and I think we need to commend anybody who does this work and any any disabled person who spends time putting out content creating content especially around something as personal as sex, you got to follow them. So I want to give a shout out to my people at Chronic Sex, Kirsten Schultz. I want to give a shout out to my people at, uh, at Carrie Wade. She does sex and disability writing for Autostraddle. She's amazing. I want to give a shout out to my friend, Kelly Trace. She does amazing work. There are other people that do sex and disability work that I can't think of immediately right now. But you know who you are. Some of you have been on the show. You're amazing. Just give a shout out to people people doing this work. And remember these tips when, um, when hiring or working with a disabled speaker or a disabled writer or somebody willing to share these very personal narratives with you. That's all I really have to say on working as a queer cripple. Thanks so much for listening and we'll talk soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast to shine a bright light on sex and disability. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, read my blogs or book me to bring disability to you, head over to www.andrewgerza.com. Also, if you're listening to this in iTunes, please rate and review us so more people can find the show. Copyright Notice This program was created and produced by Andrew Gerza and Crippled Content Creations. Any and all materials, including graphics, music, and audio recordings, are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission.